Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series, the Book of Philippians, we'll explore the lessons we can learn from the Book of Philippians related around joy in the midst of suffering. Let's turn now to part five of this series, The Elephant in the Room. This is the last part of our series on the book of Philippians. So if you've got your Bibles with you, there's only four chapters in the book of Philippians. I'm going to be in chapter four today. That's where we're going to end it out. Uh, and this has been a, a series in which I've tried to help us discover some very practical steps in finding joy in the middle of struggle, enduring seasons of struggle. And I promised the whole time that I wanted to keep it lighthearted. I wanted to, you know, kind of bring some joy into this space because I know that we're living through a very heavy season. Um, and uh, David, you were out last week, um, uh, so we didn't do any da- we didn't do any dad jokes last week. But I did save some. No, I, I did not save dad jokes. I'm sorry. My wife's not even here to defend. I brought a whole book of jokes. Like I could just stand up here and read these to you over and over again. Right? Knock knock, David. Knock knock. Tarzan. Tarzan stripes on the American flag. <laughs> I got one. That's all I'm doing. I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> you got it. It's all right. No, actually, today, instead of doing just jokes or dad jokes or something like that, I, I always like a good riddle. Does anybody like a good riddle? That's like, we got, okay, we got a couple riddlers out here. That's good. That's good. So here's the thing. Here, and this is important. Every person who comes up to tell a joke, oftentimes, it could be a comedian or particularly with riddles, they're addressing like the elephant in the room. There's a really obvious thing that's right in front of our face. None of us want to say it, but as soon as a comedian says it, we all laugh because they've addressed the elephant in the room. And a riddle is really sort of a a device that helps us do that. The answer is obvious right in front of your face. The moment that you hear the riddle, the answer is so obvious. And in fact, whenever you hear the answer to your riddle, you're like, oh, you know, and it kind of makes you laugh just a little bit, but you're like, I should have saw that coming. That's, that's the elephant in the room that addresses any kind of comedy that we have. In fact, let me just give you one real quick. And if you have one, you want to share it, I'll give you an opportunity to come up here and share like your favorite riddle in the world, if that's what you want to do. But let me just give you this one. Ready? There are 30 cows in a field and 28 chickens. How many didn't? There are 30 cows in a field and 28 chickens. How many didn't? We got, what, you got, what? What? You're going what? You're going with 10? You're going with 10. He's going with 10. Anybody else going with 10? I didn't knock that over, I promise. 38 or 30 cows and 28 ATE chickens. How many didn't? There you go. See? David, you, you are the master of all of these. All right, I'll give you one more. I'll give you one more. You ready? All right, one more. This is final. I'm not doing anything else. What has a bottom at the top? What has a bottom at the top? Anybody? I hear, I literally hear the wheels turning right now. What has a bottom at the top? No, David, I'm looking at, you got nothing on this one? A leg, a leg. You'll catch on. 
What's the bottom? Yeah, you got it. We got a few that picked up on that. All right, I'm going to leave this here. This is, this is the elephant in the room. As soon as I tell you that you, it doesn't matter what it is, you already know the answer. In fact, you hear the answer, and it's right in front of you, but it takes just a moment to address the elephant in the room in order to fully capture that, that wisdom. Now, I feel like I left a lot of you with a giant elephant in the room last week. Uh, which is why I'm talking about this today. Because last week we talked about the way in which relationships actually are a thing that brings joy. The way I, I said it last week, I said connection restores joy and connection reduces anxiety. So if you want to reduce your anxiety in your life and you want to increase your joy, you have to have connections. You have to have relationships. And what I said then was, you don't need people in your life in a transactional way, so you don't need to look for people that can offer you something. You don't need someone who can be a problem solver for you. What you need is someone who can travel with you. That's what we were suggesting, that you need a fellow traveler, someone who can just walk the journey of life with you. They may not have gone through exactly what you've gone through, and in fact, probably haven't, because all of our situations are pretty neat, unique, but we do need people to travel with us. And here's the elephant in the room. Some of you are like, Pastor Sam, have you ever been in a relationship? <laughs> like, these are the worst for my joy. Like, you've experienced the depth of sadness in your life because of a relationship. And so I felt like today I just had to come back and address that one thing because as you're listening, you're thinking, if it wasn't for that relationship in my life, I would still have my, my joy. Your relationships become the very thing sometimes, not always, that can take joy out of your life. And so we need to address what happens in those spaces when you're living in a time of struggle and hardship and you recognize that it's the relationship that's doing it. And what I'm saying to you is from Scripture, we need to over and over again find ways to reconnect with other, each other in order to develop a deeper sense of joy. And you're saying, no, I've been burned too many times. I've been down that road too many times and I feel the pain that comes from a relationship in my life. If it wasn't for that relationship, I would have that joy. And so contrary to what I said last week, the elephant in the room is that relationship. The elephant in your room is the relationship. Spirit of God, what are you speaking to us this day? Exactly what was going on. We've had all these days below, I don't know, we're just going to leave them right there. So contrary to what I said last week, it's the relationship that it needs to be reckoned with in our lives because our, our relationships are not life-giving, they're life-taking. And you've probably felt this moment in your life where you felt like you've wasted a little bit too much time on relationships and they have zapped you of your joy. And so let me just say this from the front end. This is a very real feeling that we would have as human beings. As humans, this is normal and, and this is something that we're going to constantly reckon in, in, in our lives and it's something that we need to overcome if we're going to endure and, and if our joy is going to endure in time. But every time... Or because every time that our joy is threatened, it's a connection with other people that threatens our joy. Sometimes this happens, let me just kind of spell this out. Sometimes your joy is threatened because of loss, right? That's where joy is zapped. It's a connection with somebody else. Sometimes our joy is zapped because of conflict. The conflict happens with someone else. Sometimes our joy is zapped in, in, a, in a way that has to do with our finances or something like that, but ultimately it's not the money in our hand, but it's the way that we can use those resources on behalf of relationships. And so relationships always seem to rest somewhere near the center of our, of our of 
where our joy is zapped in our lives, and that's why the Apostle Paul takes so much time to address these relationships. He's completely aware, even from his Roman prison, that his joy is going to be found in relationships, even though the deepest part of his pain right now is his relationships. He's keenly aware that connection with other people is going to bring him joy, even though he understands that that same connection is the thing that's creating disappointment in his life. He's sitting in a jail right now, thinking about the relationships with people, former co-workers of his, that he thinks was good, and now that relationship is bad. And so he feels the pain of that moment. And, and while we can't control death as something, what we can do, and death is that ultimate reality that zaps our joy, what we can do in life is manage conflict. What you can do in your life is manage the conflict that comes in the context of relationships. And this is how Paul closes his letter to the Philippians. He points us to a conflict that needs resolution. Now, uh, Hayden and I were talking about this passage earlier, and I just want to get you in the space because I think this is beautiful. Some of you know this already, but every time Paul's letters were, were read to a congregation, it wasn't that someone would pick up the copy of the letter and read it like you and I did. Someone would stand with a copy of Paul's letter in front of the congregation, and they would start going through it. And the whole congregation would come and listen to this letter. And, and what's interesting about it is the individuals that Paul addresses at the end of this letter are individuals who are in the middle of conflict and who are individuals who are leaders in the church. And I can imagine them sitting off to the side just nodding their head with everything that Paul's saying. Yeah, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then he addresses them directly and they're like, wait, could you not edit that out, right? Could you not just skip over that? But, but as the reader is offering this reading, whoever it is, Paul is, or Paul is urging these two ladies who are leaders in the church to get over something. In fact, this is what it says, and this is all we get about these two ladies. Their name is Euodia and Syntyche. And it's a very short verse of Scripture in chapter 4, verse 2. It says, I urge, I beseech, I beg, is the word that he uses here. I beg, Euodia and Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. That's it. We don't get anything else. We don't understand anything else. We hear little about both of these women's. Uh, we, we hear a little bit about both of these women in like some early church writings. John Chrysostom talks about them briefly. There's a few other church fathers who do. We, that's all we get. We don't know fully what's going on, but what we know is this. They had some sort of argument. They were living with that argument, and Paul says you need to get over it. You need to work past this. He says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, chapter 4, if I can just ground it for a minute, this is the conclusion. This is it. Paul is going to wrap up everything that he has said in the larger sort of part of his, his book in this last chapter. And Paul does this a lot. Paul will talk to us about a lot of like philosophical principles, about principles the way you live your life. But the last chapter is always, hey, how are you going to live this out? Because that's the most important thing. Paul wants to say, how do you actually take this away from the synagogue, away from the church, the house church, whatever, and how do you live it? And so chapter 4 is that chapter. He's saying, look, here's where we need to get practical. And the way he practically that I grounds this, and, and we can see this right at, right at the beginning, he says, therefore, after everything that I've said, brothers and sisters, this is verse 1, after everything I've said, therefore, here's the deal. Brothers and sisters whom I love, whom I long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Right here. Here's how I want you to do it. Here's exactly where this gets played out. Here's where your joy can be made complete. This is what he said. And then he turns to Euodia and Syntyche. 
Make my joy complete. Stand firm in the Lord in this very way, my beloved. And in light of everything that I've said so far, let me just bring it back to Euodia and Syntyche. Let me call this out. Can you imagine this? If you're having a fight with somebody and the, and the apostle comes in and he's like, all right, so the two of you, let's just get it together right now, right? In front of God and everybody. In fact, this letter was not only read in the church of Philippi, but it was passed on. So now everybody around Asia Minor knows this person, these people's business, right? But he's like, we need to practically ground our faith in this way. Be of the same mind. And with the use of that closing phrase, it appears that that these women are not only having conflict, but they're having a conflict that's disrupting the entire body of Christ. In fact, he goes on to urge the body of Christ to help them. Verse 3, he says, For they have struggled, these two women, they've struggled beside me in the work of God, together with the Clement, the rest of the co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So these women have been faithful and done this. But right before he says this, he says, I want to ask a favor of my loyal friend. Now, some people think that he's referring to a particular woman, but, he, but let's just assume he's talking to the church. Church, we need Euodia and Syntyche to get back together. Church, I want to encourage you all to help him in that path. I want to come to you, he says. Yes, I, I ask you, my loyal companion, help these women. Right, this is our obligation. This is where it can get practical. We all need to come together and make sure that we are securing them and the Lord, for they've struggled beside me, he, as I said earlier, in the work of the gospel, together with Clement, the rest of the co-workers. All of these people are in the, name, are in the book of life. These are the leaders of the church. These are the ones who have helped me out. And what's interesting about this is as he ties this up, he uses the exact same language that he has used all throughout the book. In fact, I've read you this language before. It's the language that shows up in chapter 2, uh, when he's referring to Timothy and Epaphroditus, he says Timothy in chapter two, verse twenty-two, was one who served along or served with me in the work of the gospel. He said Epaphroditus was a co-worker, and he uses the same language of these two ladies who are having tension with each other. He says, in the same way that Timothy and Epaphroditus are people who work with me in the gospel, guess what? These two leaders of the church who are at odds with each other, they're co-workers with me as well. They bear that same way, and, and yes, they're in the middle of a conflict right now, but let's not get it crossed. We're all co-workers together in this, and so in that way, I want you to help them. In that way, I want you to reach beyond and over the, over the, the aisle, and I want you to reach out to them and to see a way that you can pull them back in. Right, so there's, there's Paul addressing that he's going to send Timothy and Epaphroditus, and there's this Philippian church who's struggling with Euodia and Syntyche, and and in both of the cases, Paul is saying, these are meaningful relationships that need to be held on to. Now, let me just pause right there. For us as human beings, it would be easy to accept the Timothy and Epaphroditus type of relationship. Right? Paul is in the middle of sending Timothy and Epaphroditus to the church. These are great leaders. They don't have conflict. They're coming in. It's difficult to wrestle with the Euodia and Syntyche. But these two are the ones that are in their midst. And Paul's saying both are valid. Both are important. We need to hold on to both relationships as we press forward. Even though you might assume that this second one is the very thing that kills joy, Paul says, no, no, no. This is where our joy remains complete. This is where we live into it in the middle of conflict, in the middle of struggle, in the middle of, of what appears to be separation. You still can find joy in that moment. In fact, the way that they choose to work through those differences can help them discover how they will live into that joy. You see, what Paul understands and what you and I really, we do know this in our heart, conflict is not an anomaly of life. It's a given of life. 
Right? We wrestle with conflict all our lives, and we would rather think that it's not a part of what's happening. We'd rather think that it's not there. But in a world where relationships happen, the truth is, is conflict happens. This is just going to be a normal part, right? If you, it doesn't matter if you've just started dating somebody or you've been married for years, right? It's always cute for a couple who's been married for a long time to look at, like, the couple who just got together and been like, you had your first fight yet, right? I don't know why that's fascinating to us, but we're just waiting. There's some weird part of us that's like, I'm just waiting for the moment when you just break down. You know, you think you love each other right now. And, and we say that. You think you love each other now, right? But you wouldn't say that I don't love my spouse just because I have conflict, right? We've just reached a different level of our relationship. We still plunge into the relationship in spite of the conflict because we know there's value in the relationship. And the conflict, is, as even though we'd like to think, think of it as an anomaly, is something that's there all throughout our lives. And it's for this reason that Paul can actually go on. Just after he said this, he goes, Rejoice in the Lord always, in every time, in good times and in bad times. Rejoice in the Lord always. Whether there's conflict or not, whether there's tension or not, always rejoice. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Even though all of this relational turmoil is going on around us, you can still find joy, and here is how you can find joy. Let him, let, he's going to spell it out. He says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. Let, your, let me read that again. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. For the Lord is near. The Lord is drawing near in this moment. We can find joy in Christ as we choose to live like Christ in gentleness. As Paul lands this letter in the most practical way imaginable, he wants the church to know that the fastest path towards reconciling conflict is through humbling oneself. It's not humiliating oneself. This isn't humiliation that we're doing, that we're a part of in this way. It's humbling oneself. You know, to, and to make this point stronger, he has already addressed this in verse 2. When he told uh, Syntyche and Euodia to come together, he says, I urge Euodia, I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind. The phrase there is really simple. It's actually only two words. It says, he says very, very clearly, to think the same. That's what he says. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to think the same. Now, what's important about that? What's important is that he has used that phrase all through his letter. And of course, those who heard it would have known it. Back in chapter 2, in fact, let me just read it to you. This be of the same mind. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Make my joy complete. Think self the same. Have the same love. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better as yourself. Then he continues on in verse 5. Listen to this again. Let the same mind, or again, think the same in you that was in Christ Jesus. Right? There's something about what Paul is doing there in chapter 2 that he's encouraging Euodia and Syntyche to embody in their life later. You've got to have the same mind that Christ had. You had to think the same thoughts that Christ did. Well, what Paul, what, what is that? What does that look like? How do I embody what Christ embodied? Humble yourself. Paul goes on, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Well, what is that, Paul? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, here's what he did. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the death, the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, to maintain relationship or relational joy amid conflict, what we have to have is relational humility. 
What you have to live into, what I have to live into every single day, if we're going to find joy amid conflict, is humility. The way of the cross is the way of Jesus Christ. And Paul assumes that if we can capture that one essential element in our life, then everything else will fall into place. If we maintain humility in our life, then we don't have to worry. We can focus on the positive. He goes on in verse 6, Do not worry about anything. Don't worry about any, any, any sort of relational conflict that you have. Don't worry about that. But in everything, take all of your concerns, all of your, your anxieties, all of those things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Take those burdens back to God, release them back to Him, and don't be encumbered by the burden of that anxiety. You know, I don't, I don't know that we always quite get this or understand how much conflict really weighs us down, but, but conflict is very much like a burden. It's like carrying around a burden. That's why I have all these bags up here uh, with me today. Because it's kind of like we just, every conflict we have, we just, we take on a new burden, right? We just start toting it around everywhere we go. And at first, it's, it's okay, like, I can tolerate this. I don't have a problem with this. I walk up and down the street with it all the time. But we have another conflict, and we just sort of take these on again, right? And then we have another conflict, and we take another burden on. And, and these just sort of mount up in our lives, and keep getting heavier and heavier. Sometimes it becomes a little more difficult to figure out how you're going to navigate and hold them all, but relational conflict is very much like this burden. At first it seems manageable, but then it just sort of mounts up and mounds up, and it continues to grow, and it's why Paul is very clear right here in verse 6, don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplications with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, because it's in this that we're able to start releasing it. And Paul says, when we don't worry about all those relational things, you go on in verse 7, he says, when this happens, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it'll actually guard your heart. And I envision this like the peace of God settling on us, and finally these, these burdens are just one by one able to be dropped off. We start to breathe a little bit easier. We start to understand that that God is releasing those physically from us, and we can lay each and every one of them down. You know, I was writing my sermon this week, thinking about this illustration. I remembered a time in my life when I went to London with my dad and, and Aaron. We had just, Aaron and I had just been married uh, about a year or two when we decided to go on this trip to London, and we invited my father to come along, and we told him that we were staying in hostels. We told him that. That was a part of the deal. We would stay in a hostel. Dad, do you know what a hostel is? Yeah, I know what a hostel is. Are you sure you know what a hostel is? In case you don't know what a hostel is, a hostel is where you go. You have group showers and you have group sleeping arrangements, right? And it's really probably wise just to take a backpack in there. You don't want a lot of stuff, right? My dad did not get the memo about the stuff. And so we go over to London for a week and we're staying in hostels. And my father has four bags for one man, right? They're, that's outrageous, He's got a suit bag. He's not even wearing suits, but he's got like a garment bag he's carrying around. He's got this big rolling bag. He's got another bag he's got to carry. And he's got like some giant bag that's made for all his toiletries. I'm like, how much toiletries does one man need? Right? You just brush your teeth. You don't even have hair to comb. I don't know what's going on. Right? But that, that was his reality. That's what he had. He had all of that. And we had to go from Heathrow Airport all the way down to our hostel in the lower end of London. And I'll never forget the image of walking behind him as he is insistent about carrying his own bag. He didn't want anybody. 
and he's just struggling all the way, right? Like, how much longer is it going to be? Dad, if you just wore a backpack, like, it had been fine, right? But he's just struggling with it all the way, and we finally arrive at the hostel, and when we get in there, it's like, you know, it's a pub at the bottom. You sleep on top of the pub. So we walk into a bar, and we're going in there to, to find our room. I kid you not, the hallway stairway to get up there was about this wide. Like, that's how wide it was to get up the stairs and to get into our hostel. And my dad's got all four bags. And at this point, he's kind of like squeezed in like this with all of these bags. And we get up to our room. And immediately, he finally releases all of those burdens onto his bed. He throws them down. And of course, you know, we had a red-eye flight. And he passes out. (laughs) He is done. He doesn't care. I mean, we're in a room with 15 other beds besides his right? Nobody's in there at the moment. He doesn't care if anybody comes in. He doesn't care where his stuff is. He throws all of his bags down. He just lets it go. And in that moment, his body realizes the burden that he lets go of, and it just rests. This is the perfect illustration of what happens. We fight through life. We struggle through life. We do all of these things in life. We have conflicts with other people, and each time we carry that baggage, and you and I want to be strong enough to hold on to that baggage. We want to carry it, never realizing how much it's weighing our body down. Never realizing the peace that we act about it, we need on the other side of it. And then that moment comes, as Paul says, don't worry about anything, but by prayer and supplication, let all your requests be known to God in heaven. And when we do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all of your understanding. You don't understand it. You don't get it. You're not going to be able to articulate it. But the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You'll be able to rest. You'll be able to rest in that and not even know you needed that rest. And there's a risk involved. Like my dad passed out on that bed. His junk spread all over the place. I'm not sure who wanted his toiletry bag, but you know, it was a nice bag, I guess. He didn't care. He didn't care. Fifteen other students came walking in that room to get their bed. He found rest. In the midst of the risk, in the midst of all that was there, it didn't matter to him at all. And the same is true for us. Don't worry. Take it to God in prayer. Allow God's peace to settle in your heart. And when that settles in, you're able to start focusing on something else. This is my favorite part. In fact, this is Aaron's favorite verse of Scripture right here. Verse 8, after you do all those things and you let go of all those things, the conflict may continue to rise in your life. The tension may continue to be there. But look at how your perspective can shift. It says very practically in verse 8, Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, you can think about those things. Sometimes conflict has this way of tearing away our ability to see the good. Because all we can focus on is the bad points. But Paul says if we stop worrying, if we release that back to God, if we find God's peace, then we start to see the world in a different way. We start to see the little good that is there, the true, the honorable, the just, the pure, the pleasing, the commendable, all the excellent and praiseworthy things. You're able to see those. And you're able to physically see them in other people who you might have been in conflict with. He finishes this off. Keep on doing the things that you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me. Keep doing them. Keep living into that. And the God of peace will be with you. 
you know, if you and I take this practical step towards relational humility, imagining the other person as better than you, right? taking just a moment, that's, that's relational humility, looking at the other person in your life, imagining them to be better than you, then I think you'll start to see those praiseworthy things. I think you'll start to see those commendable things. I think you'll start to see all those good things around you. And it's not like you're creating them out of nothing. They've been there all along. But when you're no longer burdened by conflict, you can experience the joys of connection. The joys of connection were already there. They were already present. But, but we had this burden of conflict that was around us. But once we release ourselves from the burdens of conflict, then the joys of connection rush back in our lives and we see how beautiful our connections can be. And once again, we find joy. Once again, joy is in our lives. And I understand that's not the easiest thing to do by ourselves. We need one another for this to be possible. And that's why it's so important that Paul starts his section to Euodia and Syntyche in this way. He says, you guys need to do the work. Ask very quickly, he follows it up, and he says, Eudia, Syntyche, do the work, come together. But I ask you also, church, loyal companions, help them out. Come along. This, this is the work of the body of Christ, and this is a beautiful part of the body of Christ, that we are able to do that work together. That when I have trouble seeing the good, someone else can come into my life and point it, point it out to me. I can start to see the way that we can reconcile in this, in this way. You don't want another member of your body to bear that burden, and so you come along and you help them. You don't want another member of your family to fall under the weight of conflict. And so you don't just stand on the sidelines, you jump in. You jump in right here and you help out. You help out in that process of reconciliation. You call it out when you see it. You name it, whatever it is. And then you find healing together. You look for it. And that's the challenge for all of us. If we're going to address the elephant in the room, then we're going to address it together. Not by ourselves. Not solo. We're going to together address this. To find out a way that we can heal together. Find out a way where we can call out the better angels in each one of us. And you don't have to stand on the sidelines to do that, but today you can jump right in. And you can be a voice, an advocate to see that reconciliation happen for other brothers and sisters, and you can start to experience it for yourself as well. And that's where I want us today. That's where I want us to end. As we end thinking about the joy that Christ wants to bring to all of our lives, it's important to recognize the spaces where joy has been taken away, where it's been stripped. I said this morning as we were talking again with the pastors in the group, I said it's always important for us to recognize the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in the context of recognizing the good news, we would do ourselves a disservice if we didn't highlight where the bad news is. If we didn't recognize that there was bad news around us, Right. And so we name that. We claim it. We hold on to it. Then we allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to heal it, transform it, and renew it. And I don't know where that is for you today. I'm not sure where that settles in your heart. What conflict you may either witness in your life or experience in your life. But I believe this with all of my heart. There is a joy that can come to you. There is a joy that can come as we lay that down at the altar and find God's healing touch. Would you stand with me and let's pray?
Gracious God, I just want to lift my hands today in symbolic representation of a release of worry, not only for myself, but for this community who's gathered here and who's gathered online. God, today we release our worry back unto you. We ask God that you would receive that. Receive that burden from our hearts, and as you receive it, God, would you replace it with your peace? A peace that passes all understanding, a peace that guards our hearts and our minds from anything that would seek to tear it apart. God, do within us the work of reconciliation today. For all who are gathered here, Father, we ask that you would transform the way we see the world around us. As we release these burdens back to you, give us a new perspective on life, on relationships, and on connection. God, as we together offer this closing song, I ask God that you would do the work of speaking to our hearts. Where my voice ends, God, I just ask that your voice would continue. In our minds and in our hearts, convict us, Spirit of God, of where we need to create more room for relational connection, where we need to do the work of reconciliation and transformation, and where we need to live in greater degrees of relational humility. Father, we thank you so much for meeting with us, for continuing to speak to us this day.